Sassy Speculum. Sassy Speculum. Sassy Speculum. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome to the Sassy Speculum podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Knorr, and I could not be more excited to start this journey with you listeners. Because this is the very first episode of Sassy Speculum, I thought I'd start off with a little bio about me and some hints about what's to come. As I said, I'm Adrian. I'm in my fourth and final year of medical school in Portland, Oregon. I'm an absolute lover of women's health, a staunch supporter of women's rights, and a proud fur baby and plant mom. Prior to attending med school, I was a birth doula, helping women deliver babies all over Oregon, as well as teaching birth workers from all over the world about trauma-informed care for sexual assault survivors. This was an international online course that I offer over a period of six weeks with lifelong access for anyone who's interested in creating a trauma-informed birthing practice. It involves multiple healing modalities, including yoga, meditation, energy medicine, and talk therapy, so you can choose what fits your practice best. Let me know if hearing more about this is something of interest, and I can post more info for those of you who are interested, and if you're not here for the spiel that I just shoved down your throats, don't worry, because I won't bring it up again. I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy, so I'm pretty sure that this course is actually what got me into med school, as I'm certain many schools gave a cursory glance to my transcript and said, "Mm, yeah, we'll pass on this spoiled philosophy child, let's grab another boring biochem major. It wasn't until people got to see my meat and potatoes and saw that I can actually do cool shit on top of just knowing the difference between Plato and Aristotle. Unfortunately, for anyone other than philosophy hoes, I had to shove a little bit of philosophy into this first episode when we get to talking about your genitalia. So buckle up and I guess prepare yourself for some philosophy chit-chat further down the line. I feel like I need to put a warning out there for those of you listening. I have a very flimsy filter when talking with people, and unfortunately that means that I have absolutely no filter when sitting in my basement recording this podcast. If you aren't comfortable hearing about vulvas, clitorises, and sex, probably leave now or stay and get uncomfortable because that's how you learn and become a better person who isn't afraid of their own body. I promise that everything that I say will be fact and science-based. And another promise I can make is that by the end of this, you will understand your body, and if you don't identify as female, then the female body in general, way better than you did prior to you choosing to listen to this podcast. Don't come here and listen just to talk shit. I will not allow mean, sexist, or negative comments. This is a welcoming and open space for education and enjoyment. And if you aren't here for that, then you really can press pause and never come back. Bye! Another statement that I need to make, and I guarantee I'm going to say something wrong here, so I'm just apologizing now. And please, if you want to yell at me, do so respectfully and make sure you turn on caps lock so that I know you're really mad. In this podcast, not just today, but episodes down the line, I will mention the female body and women's bodies. I know that not everyone who is a woman identifies as female, and not everyone who is female identifies as a woman. I fully and wholeheartedly respect that, And in no way, shape, or form am I trying to not include you in this conversation based on identifiers. However, for the sake of time, when I mention women, females, ladies, or whatever lingo I happen to use in the moment, I am referring to those humans who have female sexual organs. Once again, please don't come at me. I'm a staunch supporter of sexual and gender rights, and I apologize that we don't have a concise way to speak politically correct. Okay, Phew, I think I've gotten all the logistics out of the way here. Now let's get to why you're actually here, to learn and hopefully laugh at how absolutely ridiculous I am and to have fun. Obviously, I know what the topic of this particular episode is, and if you looked at the title of this episode, then you kind of do too. But we'll get to that later on. 
I wanted to give you a little sneak peek right now about some future topics and see if there's anything that you would love for me to cover, as I currently have less than 10 ideas, and obviously I need more if this is going to be a thing. And if no one gives me ideas, then this podcast will probably cap out at 10 episodes, which it might anyway, as this is technically my community education project, and I only need a certain number of hours, and I might get lazy. But with encouragement from you guys, I promise to keep it going. Hear that? You are the only one who can keep this podcast going, or I guarantee my ADD will shoot me off into a new project that I will also only half finish. I guarantee it. So back to future topics, a few of the ideas that I have on board right now are the big hot topic of the year, abortions. Why we need them, why we are setting ourselves back so incredibly far by making them illegal, what you can do about it, and how you can educate those around you who claim that two cells sitting next to each other are alive. Next topic is hormones. I know we've all heard people say, ugh, I'm so hormonal, or my hormones are making me do X, Y, and Z. I'm ready to blow the lid off of this and show you how hormones aren't something that are done to you. Hormones are what make you you. They're also what tell you you're hungry, thirsty, horny, scared. Hormones don't happen to you. They are you. And I stole that little tagline from the Netflix show Principles of Pleasure, which I highly recommend you watch if you haven't already. My final topic sneak peek is on fertility, specifically how stress impacts fertility. We're all living in an incredibly stressful global time, and it's important to know how this is affecting our systems, our culture, and our future as humans. I have more topics lined up, but that's all you get to know for now, so I guess come back if you want to know more. So let's get back to today's episode. I really struggled with what to name it at first. I started off with shame being written at the top in giant letters of my notebook, and then I changed it to the beginning, and then just anatomy, and now it's the super hymen, which we will get to. This first episode is all about female anatomy. There are so many misconceptions, misunderstandings, and just overall lack of education regarding women's bodies. And it's time that each and every one of you understands the anatomy that is squeezed between your legs or someone you know's legs right now. There is no shame in not knowing about your body, but there is power in it. Our culture is continuously trying to tell women that something about their body is weird, gross, or that there is something wrong. So much of society allows meaning to be adopted, not based on biology or fact, but on control. We're going to take off our culture glasses together and look through your own biological eyes to see what's really in front of you. Or I guess it's more so what's really between your legs. We all actually have the same biological organs. Males and females are born with all of the same parts, just rearranged differently. The sexual organs are called homologs, organs of the same biological origin, but with different functions. Think about it. We both have highly sensitive, round-ended, multi-chambered organs to which blood zooms to when you're sexually aroused. For men, it's the penis. For women, it's the clitoris. In medieval times, anatomists called the vulva the pudendum, derived from the Latin word pudene, which literally translates to to make ashamed. Let that sink in for a minute. They believed that because female genitals were predominantly tucked away and up into the body, while male organs were out loud and proud, that we should be ashamed of our body parts. I don't know about you, but I have other organs that are tucked deep inside my body, and I've never been ashamed of them. Sometimes I question where my brain came from, but I've never been ashamed of it. 
And just the all-around fact that this is incredibly untrue. The clitoris is right up front and center. It's just dying to get notice. And it's not smaller because it's ashamed of being there. It's smaller because it's not in charge of carrying on the human race and zooting DNA pieces out of it. Its literal only job is pleasure. I much prefer the Sanskrit word for vulva, which is yoni, which translates to gateway to life. Because if you think about it, it is. Going back to homologs, both males and females have organs that are soft, stretchy, and super hairy. The labia majora and scrotum are also derived from the same tissue. Actually, next time you're near a scrot, take a closer look and you will see a seam running up the center. This is called the scrotal raft, a line where two halves fuse together. Do you know what that means? Had the scrot not felt the call of testosterone during week six of development, it would have split in two and become a labia. Before week six in fetal development, scrot equals labia. Going back to the clitoris, but I promise we'll get more labia talk later on. I just figure we should get to the big kahuna, get it out of the way first. I'm going to help elucidate the similarities and differences of the clitoris and the glans penis. The penis is made up of three chambers, which unbeknownst to many, all dive deep within the body as well as being up front and center. The penis is more than what you can just visually see, just as the clitoris is more than what you can visually see. As I mentioned, there are three chambers to the penis, two corpus cavernosum and one corpus spongiosum. The clitoris also has three chambers that go deep within the body and are homologous to those of the penis. We have the legs of the clitoris, also known as the cura, which are homologous to the corpus cavernosum, and the vestibule bulbs, which are homologous to the corpus spongiosum. Just like the penis, these chambers fill with blood when a woman is sexually aroused and become erect. The clitoris also extends all the way surrounding the vaginal opening. It's really not just that little nubbin at the top of your vulva that you can see. Another little tidbit, the clitoral hood, which hides and protects that little nubbin, is homologous to the foreskin of the penis. I'm going to suggest to all female-bodied humans out there to go take a look at your clitoris and understand it. Knowing where the clitoris is is important, but knowing where your clitoris is is absolute power. Don't let that go to waste. As we'll get to in a bit, there is no normal when it comes to what the clitoris can look like. It can be as small as a bead and as large as a cocktail pickle. This has absolutely nothing to do with how much testosterone is in your body, how sexual you are as a person, your ability to orgasm, or anything. It's anatomical variability, and there is nothing gross, weird, or wrong about it. Speaking about normalcy, let's talk labias. Where there is no normal, it's all normal. If your labia is long, if it's short, pink, brown, tan, then guess what? You're normal. Once again, the cultural views of labias don't match our realities. Labias in porn are often digitally changed in order to make them look a certain way. But it's common for the inner labia to be longer than the outer labia, for there to be multiple colors or just one color. Some people have hair that snakes from their vulva to halfway down their thigh, and other people are sparsely furred. Just like facial structure, your face doesn't look entirely like the person sitting next to you, and I guarantee your vulva doesn't either. The vulva has both apocrine sweat glands and eccrine glands all throughout it. Eccrine glands help to maintain homeostasis within the body. They induce sweating in order to cool the body down. These glands are the ones that make you sweaty during a workout. Apocrine glands contract and express sweat due to emotional stimulation. The vulva actually sweats more than any other part of your body. I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm not here to judge. 
An interesting little piece of info that I found is that 80% of human immune cells are in and around the mucosal openings in the body, including the vulva, vagina, cervix, and urethra. That means that a large function of the female organs are in charge of keeping you healthy. Many have heard the adage that stress decreases your immunity, and this is incredibly true. The function of these cells are strongly influenced by stress, specifically psychosexual stress. Psychosexual stress is stress from or relating to the mental, emotional, and behavioral aspects of sexual development. Psychosexual stress can be from many different causes, from something as benign as being a workaholic and not having the time or energy to allow your sexual energy to release, and it can go to something as severe as sexual trauma. Both of these, and every cause in between, are barriers or boundaries that are being crossed. When there are no boundaries in one's life, immunoglobulins, proteins that are present in immune cells, are decreased. This can lead to infection and illness, obviously, as we're decreasing the immunological system's ability to work. This is especially true for women with a history of psychosexual trauma early in life. A study was done that proved psychosexual stress leads to an increase in the risk of bacterial vaginosis, an overgrowth in the vaginal bacteria environment. Bacterial vaginosis increases the risk of postoperative infection, HIV shedding and acquisition, and premature labor in women who are pregnant. This highlights the presence of a mind-body connection that I absolutely believe is present. There's a lot of information regarding this mind-body connection topic, and it can get a little woo-woo, so for the sake of time and the promise of fact-based, researched, and proven information, I will move on for now. Now to the final meat and potatoes of today's cast. I just realized I have said meat and potatoes twice now on this podcast, and I'm pretty sure that I've never said that before in my life. I'm not even a meat and potatoes kind of gal. Anywho, this is what I really came here to talk to you about because it's super fun, and it's even funner to debunk literally everything you've ever known about your hymen. The hymen. I know what I believed the hymen to be when I was young, and after a quick Google search, I learned that I wasn't too far off from what the world believes the hymen to be. Here's what I found the world to believe. The hymen will be irreparably broken once a woman is penetrated vaginally. Here's another one. It is a clear marker of virginity and therefore purity and female worth. This is not just a medieval ideology. In 1981, when Lady Diana Spencer was about to marry Prince Charles, several magazines and newspapers reported that she was examined by the Queen's surgeon gynecologist to ensure that she had an intact hymen. She was 20 years old. In 2019, the rapper T.I. happily told a podcast that he regularly forces his 18-year-old daughter to do virginity checks with her gynecologist with him in the room, making sure that her hymen is still present. Many of us have heard that the hymen can break or tear for other reasons. It's not just having sex. And here is a direct quote from him acknowledging that he is well aware of this. So then they come and say, well, I just want you to know that there are other ways besides sex that the hymen can be broken, like bike riding, athletics, horseback riding, and just other forms of athletic physical activity. So I say, look, doc, she don't ride no horses. She don't ride no bike. She don't play no sports. Just check the hymen, please, and give me back my results expeditiously. Hold on while I go vomit. Oh, my God. Also, let's just give a giant fuck you to the gynecologist who allowed this to happen. And I would also like to say that I had to edit out all of my F-bombs, and I just thought that that one needed to stay in because it's required. Anywho, 
Are you ready for your socks to be knocked off? Everything that you have ever learned about the hymen is false. Everything that you and your friends whispered about in the lunchroom in high school is incorrect. Well, okay, there is one piece that's accurate. There can be pain when the hymen is stretched during intercourse if it's not used to being stretched. However, this is not the most common reason for pain during sex, whether it be your first time or your millionth time. The first myth we're busting open is that the hymen is not a freaking freshness seal. If it breaks or tears or whatever you want to call it, it heals itself, just like any other tissue in the body. Hymenal tears actually heal fairly rapidly and with little to no scarring unless the lacerations are extensive. That means a hymen can completely repair itself and a cursory look by your gynecologist cannot tell if it has previously been torn or has forever been intact. Here's another thing. The hymen is not a wall. View it instead as a curtain. Think about it this way. If someone has a hymenal tissue well into their 20s and we're viewing the hymen as a freshness seal of the vagina, completely sealing off the tissue, how would menstrual blood escape the vagina? People who are virgins well into their 20s still experience periods. So now that you're imagining a swimming pool of stored up menstrual blood in someone's vagina, let's debunk another myth. That the hymen bleeds during first intercourse. The hymen is a fibrous tissue, which means it has very little blood supply. If you're bleeding during your first boink, it's probably because you're ripping up your vagina walls, and that's due to improper lubrication. Everyone is nervous for the first time, no matter the situation. Nerves, plus not really knowing what you're doing, they don't equal a well-lubricated vagina. Vaginal tears happen, and just like the hymen, it will heal and your vagina will be fine. Here's another caveat. Because the hymen has no biological purpose and is just a leftover remnant from evolution, some women were never even born with hymens. Does this make them impure or soiled? No, of course not. Just like how a woman isn't soiled after she bangs it out with someone she cares about. This idea of the hymen is completely constructed by men's need to control women's bodies, which I know many of us could bitch about for hours and hours, so I'm going to save that one for a different time. Back to hymens. Just like human faces and labias, all hymens are different too. They vary from person to person, and there is no normal. As I said before, some women have absolutely no hymenal tissue anywhere on their person. Others do have one. For those of us who have had one, there are different formations that a hymen can take. First, there's the imperforate hymens. This kind of hymen does actually kind of act as a wall, and it does need to be corrected with minor surgery. It is done when a girl is young, and there are no negative repercussions of the surgery. With an imperforate hymen, there is a thin but solid membranous tissue completely surrounding the vaginal opening. Then there are microperforate hymens, similar to the imperforate, thin but solid membrane. However, these hymens have between one and many holes strewn throughout it. There are also septate hymens, which feel like a rope of skin stretching from one end of the vaginal opening to the other. Some hymens are incredibly strong and durable, others are fragile. Some hymens last all the way past menopause, while others are gone in adolescence. As a woman ages and has her hymen stretched often, it will become more flexible, and as stated earlier, it's not a rigid, impenetrable wall. Eventually, as hormones change at the end of adolescence, the tissue will begin to atrophy and will be less noticeable if it ever was even visible at all. Here's a little personal story. I remember like it was yesterday when my hymen tore, or whatever you want to call it. Don't worry, I'm not going to get graphic or anything. I was an athlete for my entire childhood before I found the calling of partying in college, which was way more fun than running circles around a field. I was in ninth grade, however. I had never had a boy look at me twice as I was very awkwardly skinny and very uncomfortable in my own body and soul. 
I had ridden my bike to school that morning and felt some discomfort down there, but what's new? I have endometriosis, so I was fairly used to discomfort down there. I went to my first period math class, and halfway through class, I was pretty sure I was dying. I left to go to the bathroom and make sure all of my organs were still in my body. It wasn't that painful, honestly, in comparison to endopains. This was nothing, but it was a different sensation. I'd never felt anything like this before. I sat down on the toilet and cried for a solid 20 minutes before I pulled up my big girl mint green panties and decided that I was going to be a badass and go back to class. I was way more worried that I was going to get in trouble for being out of class for 20 minutes than the fact that I previously thought my uterus had slipped out of my body. That was it, and I was devastated that I wasn't considered a virgin anymore, and no one would ever love me again. And I told my best friend, and she looked at me like I was insane, and told me to shut the hell up and worry about plucking my eyebrows instead. If no one else wanted to love me, at least I'd always have her. Now let's talk about how messed up it was that I was worried about my virginity status and what people would think of me after my body went through a completely normal process. In 1949, Simone de Beauvoir debunked the patriarchal social construct that is virginity. She says, The myth of virginity is one that reflects man's wish to control woman, as well as his fear of the other, and of the mystery that is the female. De Beauvoir views women as the strong and powerful beings that we are, and that men should be afraid to take a woman's virginity because of the power it gives her, not only over him, but also over nature. How cool is that? In a society where women's power is celebrated and acknowledged, this fear is what rules men. She describes a cultural lore where it is believed that a snake inhabits the unpenetrated vagina that would attack the male as the hymen is broken. Anyone else getting, like, teeth vibes with that? If you haven't seen that movie, I truly recommend it. Essentially, it's about a virgin teenager who gets raped and turns out that she has a toothed vagina that bites off the penises of men who bone her. Truly stellar cinema. These folklore concepts of vagina dentata, or vagina snakeata, if you will, correlate to the weakening of male sexual prowess and the strengthening of that of females. However, in our society, taking a woman's virginity is a sign of sexual prowess for men. It is compared to climbing mountains, conquering demons, crawling through a thorn patch to reach a rose garden. Taking a woman's virginity is now correlated with becoming a man. And if men are only defined in relation to women, then the taking of a woman's virginity is what creates a man, and a woman giving her virginity is what makes them a woman. Women are viewed simply as bodies and property, and therefore men would expect that property to be unsullied. By making women an object that man can break or take as he pleases, masculinity is active and defined by doing, while femininity is defined by passivity and submissiveness. All I can say to that is hail no. As virginity is no longer the norm, women are beginning to feel more empowered to take ownerships of their own bodies, sexuality, and power. And more and more people are recognizing that virginity is entirely socially constructed and is not something that can be taken or given now that's enough philosophy talk for one day. Thank you, Simone de Beauvoir, for your virgin philosophies. If anyone's interested, her manifesto, The Second Sex, is rad. And if you read it, let me know, because I miss having philosophy chats with people. Back to concepts of virginity and hymens, I wanted to see what the world of research is discussing regarding hymens nowadays. I found a study performed in Morocco that looked at 529 patients who had undergone hymen restoration a procedure consisting of suturing the edges of hymen remnants or vaginal tissue to the vaginal opening to restore the ability to bleed during sex. Let me repeat that. 
women purposefully are going to plastic surgeons to get an absolutely pointless piece of tissue restored for the sole purpose of being able to bleed one time during sex. First off, this study openly states that there are no surgical standards for hymenoplasties. That means that the surgeon could essentially stitch up whatever they want down there and call it a hymenoplasty. According to New Look, New Life Cosmetic Surgical Arts, in the case of people who don't have any hymenal tissue, a thin layer of vaginal wall tissue is removed and placed over the vaginal opening. People are cutting into their vaginas, cutting through blood vessels, nerve fibers, and muscle, therefore decreasing a woman's ability to experience pleasure forever in order to bleed one time during sex. And on top of that ridiculousness, this is considered an elective procedure, so people are paying out of pocket for this surgery. According to Dr. Vitasana, a green-yellow discharge is expected from the surgical site for six to eight weeks after surgery due to the vagina being a dirty, bacteria-filled place and bacterial infections ensuing. That is a direct quote. I want to smack anyone who says the vagina is dirty because of the presence of bacteria. There is bacteria on every single surface of your body, and you don't consider yourself dirty, do you? This mentality that the vagina is dirty is hurting society as a whole. Women are faced with scented tampons and pads, douche kits, feminine hygiene deodorant, and washes. When women see these in the stores, it perpetuates the belief that the vagina is dirty or in need of sanitizing. The only douche kit I need is one that eradicates the world of douchebags. All of these cleaning products actually make one more susceptible to infection. Speaking of infection, back to Dr. Vitasana, she also claims that post-op infection is normal and should be expected after hymenoplasty. Malpractice claims are swirling like crazy in my head right now, and I'm honestly shocked that enough people have gotten the surgery for them to even be able to make these claims. In a study done by the University of Chicago, based on work by the chief of plastic surgery at a hospital in India, a super hymen was created because women weren't pleased with the one to two drops of blood and they wanted more. The difference between a hymenoplasty and a super hymenoplasty is the size of the drainage hole that they allow. The smaller the hole, the more blood as a penis tears through it. Obviously, urine, menstrual blood, and vaginal discharge need to drain. And in the case of hymenoplasty, it's typically a flap or that curtain that we talked about of tissue. That's, it's still left open on one side to allow drainage. A super hymen doesn't have that flap. It is completely sewn up except for one tiny hole near the urethra. This can obviously lead to severe infection and buildup of waste products, all to please a guy who doesn't think their woman is good enough without proof of virginity. I was discussing the super hymen with my mom, and she told me that when she was a kid, her friends told her that she shouldn't use tampons as they were only for married women whose hymens had already been broken. As if having a period wasn't hard enough, let's throw in more guilt about what you can and cannot catch blood with as it shoots out of your body. At this point, we've discussed some of the major structures that the eye can see when simply looking at a vulva. The Greeks said the female organs are all hidden inside the body, but clearly I just meant the past 28 minutes explaining female organs that are hanging out front and center on the outside of the body. So take that, Plato. I thought virginity and hymens would be a great place to start this podcast, as that's essentially where everyone starts at some point. But now let's dive deeper into the body and talk about what the eye can't see. Vagina. Vagina. Two plus two equals vagina.
That's right, we're talking about vaginas. The vagina is essentially a passageway of muscle and mucous membranes. In Latin, vagina means a sheath for a sword. And once again, we see that women are only defined in reference to men and their penises. It's about 7 to 10 centimeters long, which is about as long as an intact pencil. It's squished between the urethra and bladder up front and the rectum out back. Surprisingly, the vagina doesn't contain any glands. Instead, fluid just seeps in through the vaginal walls to create natural lube. Fluid is leaked from vaginal capillaries due to vasocongestion, the swelling of bodily tissues caused by increased blood flow and blood pressure, aka your horny. This process is extremely dependent on nitric oxide, which is very, very chem chemically similar to laughing gas, or the gas that people huff from whippets. But in the body, nitric oxide is released in response to getting horned up or relaxed. Once it's flowing through the blood vessels, it causes muscle relaxation and the release of that homemade lube. Ever wonder what your homemade lube is actually made up of? The major components are water, sloughed off epithelial cells, cervical mucus, fluids from the upper genital tract, and leukocytes, also known as white blood cells. Estrogens and sexy stimulation are two main factors that increase vaginal fluid and secretion. The vagina has four functions, actually. It's much more than just a sheath for a needy penis. The sexual functions that we just talked about, that's one function. It's in charge of the female arousal response as well as sexual pleasure. It's also in charge of carrying menstrual blood out of the body. It has obvious reproduction functions as the main receptacle for sperm and the aforementioned sheath for the peen. And finally, it acts as an immunological defense. It offers protection against harmful pathogens by having an acidic pH between 3.8 and 4.5. That's the same pH as tomato juice or acid rain even. It also protects the body with the use of vaginal flora and chemical signaling. As mentioned before, those bacteria that hang out in your vag are necessary and they're extremely useful when it comes to keeping up a strong immune response. A healthy body does not need exogenous products to wipe out this vaginal flora. At the very top of your vagina is the cervix. The cervix connects the body of the uterus to the vagina. Its main job is to make and release a thick and sticky mucus for the majority of your menstrual cycle and during pregnancy to stop sperm from entering the uterus at the wrong time. When it's the right time and an egg is ready for a sperm to swim up, cervical mucus actually acts as a sperm elevator into the uterus, carrying thousands of little spermies from the vagina into the uterus so that one of them can succeed and meet the egg. The cervix is the area your doctor is assessing when they perform a pap smear. She or he is using a little brush to sweep up some cervical cells to see if there are abnormal cells or cellular changes in this area. The cervix is also the area that your doctor has to open wide in order to place an IUD. This is the part when they say you'll now feel some slight pressure, but it actually hurts so insanely bad. That's your cervix. Here's a funny little IUD story. I've had two IUDs placed in my adult life, and I can guarantee you that I will never get a third unless I am fully anesthetized and asleep. My second IUD I got just over a year ago, and I just got absolutely shit-faced drunk for it, but my first IUD I got in 2017, that's the fun one. I'd started dating my current partner one month prior, so it was too soon to ask him to pick me up and drive me in case shit went down. Well, shit literally did go down, because I not only passed out on the table after they placed it, but I also full 
ass pooped on the table. I pooped. On the table. What made this extra fun was that I also happened to work for this office, so I had no escaping the doctor and nurse who watched shit zoot out of my body while their faces were less than a foot away. And now for some reason I want to go into gynecology and let other people potentially do this to me. Anyways, the nurse then had to call my stepdad, who was listed as my emergency contact, and tell him, your daughter is at the Center for Women's Health, and she just had a procedure done, and we need you to come pick her up. So on top of shitting on people that I worked with, passing out on the table badly enough that I required IV fluids to wake me back up, I then had to explain to my father figure that no, I had not just had a secret abortion, and please take me home to die now. If you ever need to get an IUD placed, I recommend going to a naturopath. We are trained to use anesthetics to place the IUD, so it will be less of the worst thing to ever happen to you, and actually feel like that slight pressure that medical doctors promise while they sink literal metal teeth into your organs without any pain medicine. Moving superiorly from this little shithole that is the cervix is the uterus. The uterus is a little pear-sized organ that sits in the low center of the pelvis. At its bottom, it's attached to the cervix. On the sides, it's connected to the pelvic walls by ligaments. On its front, it's attached to the back of your bladder. And at the top, it's connected to the fallopian tubes, which have little finger-like projections called fimbrae that coax the egg up into its system from the ovary. The uterus hasn't been studied very much outside of its role in childbearing, and if that doesn't show you what society thinks of women, then I don't know what will. The uterus is viewed as someone else's potential home only. It is viewed to have little value if no kids are going to come out of it, and its removal is actually the second most commonly performed surgery in America, right behind C-sections. The ovaries are viewed similarly as many medical professionals believe that exogenous hormones can do the job of ovaries even better than the ovaries can. In a quote from a prolific gynecological oncologist at Dartmouth University, she said, the uterus is only for growing babies and growing cancers. And therefore, they should be removed once it's done growing babies, even in a healthy woman without risk factors for uterine cancer. The uterus is responsible for so much more than just growing babies. It's involved in hormone regulation, sexual satisfaction, as well as bowel and bladder function. This mentality is actually harming women's health and in essence, the human race. According to the National Women's Health Network, unnecessary hysterectomies have put women at higher risk for heart attacks, strokes, early onset menopause, urinary tract infections, decreased sexual sensation, lack of lubrication, depression, hormone deficiencies, decrease in blood supply to necessary organs, and so much more. 600,000 hysterectomies are done annually in the United States, and by the age of 60, a third of women have had a hysterectomy. The amount of hysterectomies won't decrease until these negative connotations about women's bodies are eradicated. Long story short, the uterus plays a huge role in the health of women, and it's not something to just be removed once it's done pumping out kiddos. Let's jump on this train out of the uterus and follow the fallopian tubes to the ovaries. The ovaries are small, oblong, pearlescent organs just south of the tubes on both sides of the uterus. They are composed of two different parts, the theca, which is the outer portion, and the inner medulla. As I mentioned earlier, many people view the ovaries as useless after menopause just sitting in the abdomen taking up space. This is also incredibly true. It is true that as we age, the theca regresses and gets smaller, but as one door closes, another one opens, and the inner medulla thrives during this time. 
The medulla is loose connective tissue that is abundant with blood vessels, lymphatic vessels, and nerve fibers. And it's been proven that the ovaries can still produce steroid hormones for decades after menopause, especially androstenedione, which converts into estrone, one of our estrogens. And believe me, when you reach postmenopause, you need all the estrogen you can get for lubrication, maintaining a stable vaginal pH, mood support, bone strength, sleep regulation, and more. Actually, pre- and postmenopausal ovaries produce up to 50% of androgens in the body, meaning that they're not just inert pieces of tissue taking up space. Scooching back in time to a menstruating female, the theca, or the outer cortex of the ovary, is where the eggs mature. Once a month, as an egg grows, a nourishing fluid-filled sac grows around it in order to keep it safe. This fluid-filled sac is also known as a cyst. At ovulation, the cyst will burst open, and the fluid, called liquor folliculi, is then released into the pelvic cavity with the egg. The egg is then swept up into the fallopian tubes. In the ovary where that cyst was is now a new collection of cells called the corpus luteum. While this is within the ovaries, its main job is actually to make your uterus a healthy place for the egg to implant and for a fetus to grow. The corpus luteum releases estrogen and progesterone to prepare the uterus for pregnancy. Its release of progesterone is the most important job of the corpus luteum. This release makes the uterus larger, it thickens the internal lining of the uterus so that a fertilized egg has a fluffy area to snuggle into, and it also keeps the uterus supplied with plenty of oxygen and blood. If the released egg does get fertilized, the corpus luteum will continue to release progesterone for the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, until the placenta is able to produce enough for the baby. If the egg is not fertilized, the corpus luteum starts to break down after 10 days, causing a decrease in progesterone telling the uterus to let go of that nice cushy bed it made and throw it away, aka you get a period. For most of human life, we've believed that women are born with all of the eggs that they'll ever have, and unlike men, we can't create more. However, a study done at the Jones Institute for Reproductive Medicine proved the existence of cells in mice that can replenish new eggs throughout a female's reproductive life. This research is groundbreaking and could have life-changing repercussions. It could allow one to control the timing of menopause, increase fertility, prevent premature ovarian insufficiency, recover fertility after chemotherapy, and so much more. I really recommend looking into this research. It's super cool, and it's on the forefront of medicine. The truth about ovaries is that they are dynamic organs that do so much more than just allow pregnancy. They are not something useless or potentially harmful to us once we turn 50. There are many ancient traditions that support the view of ovaries being a part of our body's wisdom throughout life. In Taoist cultures, the ovaries are believed to contain a large amount of our life force. There are special ovarian breathing exercises to release this force and store it and share it around the body to revitalize other organs. In Japan, there are teachings that suggest women can maintain sexual attractiveness far into old age by consciously working with this ovarian energy. So that's pretty cool if you don't want to dry up with old age. And that's all I have for you today regarding female anatomy. If you've listened for this long, thank you. And please let me know what you thought or what you'd like to hear more about. I'm really excited to continue this podcasting journey with you. And please share it with your friends. You can listen to Sassy Speculum on any of your usual podcasting sources. And if you'd like to reach out to me for whatever reason, you can find me on Instagram at Sassy Speculum or shoot me an email at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening to my diatribe. Bye.